You must be Igor. No, it's pronounced Igor. But they told me it was Igor. Well, they were wrong then, weren't they? Uh, you were sent by Herr Falkstein, weren't you? Yes. My grandfather used to work for your grandfather. <laughs> How nice. Of course, the rates have gone up. Of course. Of course. I'm sure we'll get along splendidly. Oh, sorry. I, uh, you know, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I'm a rather brilliant surgeon. Perhaps I could help you with that hump. What hump? Let's go. Allow me, master. Oh, thanks very much. Walk this way. This way. The Lifers Podcast with Scott Lucas, Gabe Rodriguez, and Ben Reiser. And now, here's Scott, Gabe, and Ben. I don't like bananas. You don't like bananas? No, I don't don't like bananas. bananas bananas Tell us about this. What's going on here? I don't like the taste of bananas, and I don't like the texture, I don't think. I've never heard of that in my life. You have never. You guys don't know anyone who doesn't like bananas. I can see it. They're especially like those mealy bananas. They're really. It's pretty gross. You got to get a nice, good banana. I'll tell you what else I don't like. I don't like pears, and I don't like cantaloupes or any other melons other than watermelon. You you should like pears, Ben, because they're good for you. And see, I with like that, with that Pequod's pizza shirt you got on you're probably going to need pears in your life yeah well anyway well i'm back i'm back home uh that was a an eventful week in south carolina i got some guy working on my water heater right now so you have no hot water is that what you're telling us no but gabe what's that what's that what's that saying when it rains it this is what is it? Yeah. Oh, pours. Okay. Did you make that up? All by myself. All by myself. Do 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 do. You know, Justine's dad has a new car. He used to have a Jeep. So now he's got one of those SUV and he thinks it's a it's less than a manly car. So this was a a, a big conversation last week. And uh he, you know, he he's an ex-cop, uh, but he doesn't put on the seatbelt right away. So this new car or new vehicle he has, I guess it's not really a car. I don't know. Who cares? I don't give a shit about cars. This new vehicle he has, when he doesn't have the seatbelt on it, it goes ding, 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 ding. And it sounds like it's, I can't live the Harry Nelson version can't live without you is going to start. And so I'm, I'm you sang all by myself. I know that's not the same song, but they sometimes they kind of feel like the same song, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Same wheelhouse. Yeah. That's a long story here. Gabe, do you, do you even know that there's a difference between those two songs? There are two songs. Uh huh. Is it a cover? Oh yeah, sure. Or is it not a cover, but it seems like it should be a cover. I don't know, but uh, as I said, we, we, this is uh, take two. We tried this once uh, in South Carolina. It did not go well. I apologize. Let's let's try this again. Gabe, can you tell us what the show today is about? What's going on here? This is our uh, introduction to the Jack Douglas interview that you did a couple weeks back. Right. Where you interviewed Jack and gave let him talk about uh, his stories with John Lennon and Ringo and George. 
So in, in some ways, we we have Jack Douglas on the show today, but we don't really have Jack Douglas on the show today. We've been trying to get Jack on the show, and he's uh, rightly so, I think, been sort of like, you know, making excuses. Does he know? Uh, Does he know this is going to be here? <laughs> Why do you say rightly so? What what's his? Well, I I, I mean, you know. Sometimes this show can go down the drain as it did on, on Monday night. Uh, right. So Scott's referring to the fact that I we think tried down to the drain is 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 a proper metaphor. Go ahead. Well, Scott's referring to the fact that we recorded an intro to this Jack Douglas interview that he did at G Man. Was it a couple months ago at this point? No, it was in December. Oh, okay, Just a, a month, month ago. ago. Yeah. Um, and, uh, for, for various reasons, we're not using that intro and we're re-recording it now. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we're, we're sitting here on Thursday morning slash afternoon, depending on what time zone. It's not the worst intro or worst, uh, content we've ever recorded. Uh, oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> Maybe it was. But, but it's I, the I, only, as far as I know, it's the only full session that we have had that is not going to make it into a podcast in any form. I, I just think Jack deserves something a little <laughs> a little bit more dignified. But so on the say. other hand, you know, this might work quite well with, um, you know, maybe we had this episode that's got the, the missing Fig Dish segments from G-Man along with that intro from the other night. I don't maybe know. We, I, <laughs> You know, I feel about that segment we recorded the other night, the way Donald Pleasance feels about Michael Myers in Halloween. I, I never want it to get out. Never, ever. No, never. I never want it to get out. <laughs> One of the things we talked about in the South Carolina intro is how I finally watched that Taylor Swift movie. Yeah, I think she's lip syncing. That entire movie, I think she's... I don't think she's singing one note. Is anybody else? Uh, you saw this in a theater, Ben. Yeah, I didn't get that impression. Sorry. Well, is it possible? Is it possible she actually sang in front of the people, but they didn't like what she did, so she overdubbed it for the movie? Is that possible? That's totally possible. But what's the thing? What's the main she, I think issue? She's got a, a pretty well-oiled machine. The well. What's the main issue? What What is it that you, when you watched and listened to that movie? What was the What was the prime? Uh, I don't know. What was the main thing that made you think, oh, this is lip synced? Because of consistency when her mouth of... moved, when her mouth moved and the words I was hearing, they weren't matching over and over and over. And that but that could, could be... just be an audio sync problem between your picture and sound on that no, TV. That happens point. all the time. That could be. No, 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 no. That's not what it was. Afterwards, I watched this Garth Brooks special where he's in a bar. Yeah. <laughs> Have you like seen the, that? Yes, I saw some of that. I couldn't okay. take it for too long. That dude yes. is not lip syncing. That's no. what somebody sounds like when they're right. when they're holding a microphone. But and I used to. But what I brought up on South Carolina too was that I used to think that about when I would see Beck do live performances, clips of Beck. I thought, wow, no matter where, no matter where he is compared to the microphone he's singing into whether he's two feet away or an inch away everything that sounds the same it doesn't i don't hear any difference between him singing slightly off mic right. and on mic and so i always thought i think beck is lip syncing but then Maybe. i decided i think they're just as good microphone technology where there's enough compression where you know you got a lot of leeway as to where you can be in relation to the microphone and still have everything sound basically the same it's possible it's also probable that somebody's lip syncing. Are you going to make this a thing? Make it trending on social media? No, because uh, I don't give a shit enough. But I, I was, <laughs> I watched a couple of songs. I was like, ooh, I don't know. But the thing is, is I don't think anybody cares about this. I, Here's I what it says. people really care. Well, there, no, there's, I mean, I typed it in and there's plenty, plenty of people with that question. Okay, and so my other question is, it's for this that Millie Vanilli hung himself? It just seems like it wasn't, that, it wasn't that far back where people were vilified for doing this kind of thing. And now it's just, it's everywhere. And the fact that I'm even talking about this is ridiculous. I was just a little shocked. 
Whose idea was, who's the big Taylor Swift fan in South Carolina that was like, let's watch this thing? Justine's dead. So now he's, he's and he's worried about he's worried about his unmanned masculinity. Car. Yeah. yeah, he's driving around in a chick car, and he's watching Taylor Swift concerts. Listen, hold on here. We're fifty-year-old dudes talking about Taylor Swift and how she's lip syncing. Do you think the fifteen-year-old girls that she's really no. garnering care? They don't care. I don't. But, I don't. I don't think but they I, should. But, and I'm but. saying I don't think they would care if she came out on a stage by herself and played acoustic guitar for three hours. So why why not save yourself some money and aggravation and just play to your strengths as an artist man but they don't want to hear a different version of the song that's stripped down in the acoustic guitar yeah, they, they do. want to hear they, they want to hear do. the record they want to hear the record verbatim i think the they verbatim. do want to hear stripped down because she does that too she does have an acoustic section of her concert well, i think that's go. what people she's, love the she's most she's got it all she's got it all Ben. now it, let, let's be 50 year old men and, and shit on something else uh all right barbie mm. so uh the, the best picture nominees came out Ben, you look, you look upset about something. No, no, no. It, 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 other than Barbie, I don't have a pro- well. And Maestro, which I thought was kind of a pos, but Maestro is not great, but it's good. Maestro, I have, I, I have very little problem with Maestro. I can't now. I know there was a lot of controversy about Bradley Cooper's nose. And why he needed this fake nose to make himself look more Jewish, I guess, was the controversy. I'm much more comfortable talking about Bradley Cooper's nose than I am about Taylor Swift. To me, the whole movie begins and ends as soon as I see Bradley Cooper's nose, which is so distracting. And not because it makes him look Jewish or something. He just, it doesn't make him look more like Leonard Bernstein to me. And it makes him look like Danny Kaye. And I kept thinking, this should be a Danny Kaye biography. It's, it's, I, I, it's so It makes him cross-eyed because he's like, his eyes are like pulled towards his big nose. He looks like an idiot throughout this movie. And I couldn't get past just Bradley Cooper looking stupid. Yeah, I don't really care about stuff like that. That stuff doesn't really kill movies for me. I mean, I just thought there was a lot of like pretty great scenes in it. Uh, and... And some pretty big swings. And I think he's good. I, I, I like what he... This wasn't as good as A Star is Born. I liked Star is Born a lot. This one I haven't been able to... The only to movie I through. really... Well, I'm not a huge Past Lives fan, but the only movie I really hate on this list is American Fiction. Man, that movie was disappointing. It's just so bland and... They got a lot of nominations. I know they did. It's and funny that the people sucks. I know who go see every movie... I haven't seen American Fiction, but they but there seems to be a pretty evenly divided thing of like people who think it's fantastic and people who think just like you that it's totally a piece of shit. It's just not good. It's not good. It doesn't deserve to be here, uh, especially when you you consider that May December not, not only gets and all the people crying about Barbie. For me, the real the real travesty is where is Julianne Moore and where is Natalie Portman the two best performances of the year did they have a a weird nose did it ruin it for you Ben no I like those performances okay Uh, that's a great movie and those performances are phenomenal I don't know if it's a great movie travesty but yes but does that that that, but yeah oh that movie's terrific man that 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 movie's got a lot going on why what's your favorite of the movies that are nominated I think Probably Anatomy of a Fall. Hmm. What did you pick? What was your number one? The Holdovers. I think The right. Holdovers is the best out of the bunch. I liked Anatomy more than Holdovers, but I'm excited to see Holdovers again in 35mm with Alexander Payne in attendance mm-hmm. coming this April. You'll see. You'll see. All right, back to Jack. So when Local H did that tour uh, where we went to New York in December... Came back and dropped me off at G Man, and I went in there, and there, you know there was Jack, and we we did this interview, and Jack is starting a label, and one of the signees on that label is uh, Robin Zander's son, Robin Taylor Zander, and he produced and wrote this record, and performs on this record, and Jack is kind of hanging out with him, and doing a few stops here and there, uh, live shows and record store appearances. So somehow somebody got the idea that I could introduce Jack. And I'm like, do you want me to interview Jack? And I said, sure. And so I was like, ah, 
We're going to get him on the show whether he likes it or not. So, so yeah. And, and the thing is, we talked a lot about John Lennon and the Beatles, and, and it was great. I mean, the real interview was the hour we talked before we even went on stage. You know, we, we've had this joke with you guys where I'm like, save it for the podcast. But there was a lot of points where I was like, Jack, just just save it. There's so many good stories he told me. Um, and not all of them are stories that he would want to tell on stage. But I ended up talking to him for, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour, which I didn't think I could fill. And then like that, it was over. And I was, if we could get him on again someday, that would be great. And we could do two more hours. Are you saying that Jack is getting interviewed by other people at other stops on this mini tour that they're doing? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'm not. I, I think the other stops are more of a, a question and answer thing. But, but the, I, I think the conversation went so well that we didn't even have time for question and answer. It was like, oh. And the thing is, is I think Aerosmith and Cheap Trick are very. They take a lot from the Beatles. They're very Beatles centric bands. And and the fact that that Jack is still very close with those two bands and has a continued working relationship with those two bands speaks to the fact that the guy is an absolute Beatles nut and, you know, ended up working with all of them. And he has he has tapes of all that stuff, all, all that John Lennon stuff that we you know, we still hear. Like that that single that came out. He's had those tapes, you know, but uh, he went over to England to to sort of meet the Beatles. That's he went over there to do that. And he ended up doing that, you know. And so, I mean, he was he was a pal with John Lennon. And then and, and the, the toughest part of the interview for me was that he still feels a lot of remorse for not being there the night that John was shot. Which is crazy. You, 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 who could do that to themselves? You can't do that, you know. But, but I mean, the guy was super close to history, super close to, like, almost like, like you know, like you mentioned, Ben, like that Stephen King book. It, like, if he had been in a different place, things could have been different. And the and world that, would be different. The world would be different, and and that kind of thing has haunted him, rightly or wrongly. It, it's haunted him, and and I was. Uh, that's pretty, I almost cried. And we talk about Jack. Jack, who's, you know, one of the greatest producers to ever do it. I think, uh, I kind of think there'd be no Steve Albini without Jack. Now you listen to those drum sounds on rocks. It's, I, I, I don't have proof. I've never heard him say it, but it sounds to me like that's where Steve got his drum sounds from. I know he's a huge fan of the first Cheap Chick record, which... Jack produced so who knows who knows isn't there a cheap trick record that Steve Albini went in and remixed yes he remixed the well he re-recorded the second one in color oh re-recorded yeah we talk about that too like that's something where cheap trick always felt like it was too light it wasn't heavy enough um but you know it's a cool sounding record. And that's the, the album that Jack was going to produce, but then got pulled into another project. And Right. He couldn't get out of yeah. Draw the Line. It was an, an endless endless summer with Aerosmith. And he recommended a producer. And then, well, Aerosmith was the you, priority of that right. summer. So well, you're going to hear this whole story. So Top priority. We can yeah, you're going to hear all this stuff. So without any further ado, let's do this. Jack. Douglas, we got him. Behind his back. <laughs> oh, I told him. I said, we're going to do this. And I said, is it okay if we put this? He goes, yeah, oh, yeah, sure, sure. By that point, he was, he was getting late and he was, he was done with me. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Hi, everybody. I was going to introduce Jack Douglas, bring him up. But uh, you don't go for that shit, do you? No, no. no. Just, just get on with it. Anyway, <laughs> the greatest living producer, Jack Douglas. Let's hear it for him. Wow. So you're a record mogul now. Yeah, I have a label. Yeah. Uh, 
Actually, we started the label a while, a while ago, and then um, along came some financing. So now the label is more than just two people trying to put it together. We have a whole staff of people. So what, what, what was the thinking? You just have... You know, I, it's just, insane. Yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, how can I find a way to lose money? <laughs> but the, the thing is that... Um, it's it's a it's an artist centric label, uh-huh. uh, so that we become. It's not like we rip off the artists. And I thought that would be really cool if we could have a label where we become partners with a, with an artist and we split everything with them instead of saying here you can have twelve percent of the retail price. Of, you know, no, let's go fifty fifty and 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 do this thing. So right, that's what we're doing, and and uh, and we're supporting uh, the the artists as well and and robin's on the label um i mean i kind of know how that happened but how did that happen uh well his dad yeah who i've worked with over the years uh and and they're like family those guys yeah anyway his dad said to me one day you know you should listen to my son's stuff uh he's really special this is a couple of years ago, and at that time it was just the two two of us running this label. And he played me some demos, and I thought, man, this stuff is really amazing. It really is good. And then it, we kept going further and further with it, and then the, the label came along, financed, and were able to do stuff like it. stuff like this. Yeah, you know, and you guys are going to hear Robin tonight, and the the record is really great. And the thing is that, um, you know, I didn't produce it. Robin produced it himself. I mean, he's like so multi-talented. He played all the instruments for yeah. the most part. He didn't play the harp uh, and a few other, maybe the fiddle, you know, uh, or the sax or whatever. Uh-huh. But all of the rhythm instruments and uh, he played and sings most of the background. Backward what about vocals. all that backward stuff that that's on the? He he actually walked into the room backwards. Uh huh. And <laughs> that's how it works. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's how you do it, folks. I mean, people <laughs> think it's trickery, but it's, um, and and you know, it, it just uh, it's a great album, and and I got a chance to mix it yeah. with my mixing partner of many years, uh, Jay Messina. James, yeah, he, he he and I worked on your record. We worked on a record together. Yeah. Yes, uh, it came out two thousand two, so it's old enough to drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you kind of got this big start by going to Liverpool back in the day, and just what you just went looking for the Beatles. Well, I kind of did, but the thing is. Um, I mean, I was in bands for years. Right. I played on Rush Street. I played in Milwaukee. I played in Madison and I, Green Bay and uh, up and down Michigan. Yeah, that's the other and, thing. This, this connection you have with Wisconsin cracks yes, me up, too. Because, I, because uh, the band that I was in had a hit record in, uh, in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee. <laughs> of course. Uh, we had two hit records. That's when you had regional radio. So, uh, so I was, I, you know, I was a recording artist and a writer, uh, you know, f- from 1964 uh-huh. until whenever I stopped uh, being an artist. My last record was produced by the Isley Brothers. And awesome. uh, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, that part of my career was great, but I wanted to stay home. I mean, mm-hmm. I'd been on the road for years, so I just wanted to. So I ended up uh, on the other side of the glass. Uh, right. Well, not exactly. I got into the studio because, as a janitor. Yes. That was the way in. Any no, way just in. a straight up janitor. I mean, it, it's not a euphemism. You were a, a I janitor, was the janitor. Cleaning yeah. toilets. Yes. And okay. sweeping up and. And um, but the thing was, um, I I was also a composer, so and I'm still composing mm-hmm. for film. But I was the janitor during the day, and at night, I was uh, I was producing and writing the music for a TV series. I 
no one here, I think, is old enough to remember that was the ABC after school specials. I, I remember it. I totally okay, remember. well, I was writing the music for the original shows. So I was a client at night and, and uh, the janitor in the daytime. <laughs> so it was, it was odd, but I really, you know, I worked my way up till the union stepped in and said, you have to have a union janitor here. Okay. So they made me a general worker. And my job, my first job as a general worker, they, they were recording the Woodstock Festival. And the, the van would come up with the tapes, and the artists from the festival were, was it, were in the studio. Right. And they were fixing, you know, overdubbing on the tapes to fix all of the errors that were on there. And so... I would go out to the truck, and it wouldn't say who's, who the artist was. It would just say on this, deliver to Studio A. And the first tape that I took off the truck, there were, well, there was a stack of tapes. Uh-huh. I put them on a truck, and I rolled them into Studio A, and I was overwhelmed by this pot, and the whole room was smoky. And Jimi Hendrix came out of the smoke like in a delirious dream, with a joint, it's said, hey, man, you're like, and I knew that if I, and Eddie Kramer was in the control. Wow. And I knew that if I hit that joint, I would be fucked for right. the day. Useless. Because he was gone. You know, I knew it was good shit. <laughs> but I, I said to myself, I am definitely in the right place. Right, right, right. Because, they're, you know, this is insane what's going on here. And so I worked my way up. Uh, to tape librarian and and then to the editing room where I was uh, editing jingles for like Ford and all, you know airlines and all these uh, commercials and they would want they, they would do a 60 second spot which is really a 58 seconds mm-hmm. and they would want a 28 and a 15 and it would you know but right. it had to hold up and so I would do all this editing. I got really good at editing stuff. Right. And that led to, uh, in 1971, getting put on a gig as the editor and transfer engineer for a record that was Imagine. Right. It was the Imagine record. So what was happening, all these tapes were coming in from England and I would get them first because they had to be transferred right. to multi-track, to step up to multi-track with Dolby. And, and then some of them needed to be edit, edited, which would be not on the first master, but on the second master, which meant cutting two-inch tape. And all the notes were from John Lennon. They were, after this verse, cut to this next verse... And I'm reading these notes, and I'm like, I can't believe this. Yeah. I can't believe this. Now, some years before that, 1965. Right, because he knew who you were. Well, he did, but, uh, but it was quite accidental. In 1965, my buddy and I went to Liverpool on a tramp steamer. It was the cheapest way to get there with the dreams of becoming artists in uh-huh. Liverpool and seeing the you know being friends with the Beatles and all, all these fantasies you have when you're a kid that you know you're going to do this well uh immigration came on board i mean it was a terrible trip we crossed the north atlantic in november and and it was awful uh and we were the only passengers uh-huh. and it was like a crew of pirates <laughs> it's it, it, yeah it's good training for the music yeah. business uh, so, yes. And immigration came on board and they asked if we had a, uh, a visa to be there. Uh, they said, what are you doing here? We said, we've come to work. We had our guitars. Yeah. And, and, no, no they don't that's, like that. that's bad. So where's your work permit? Where's your visa? Where's your return trip ticket? And they told me that when this boat leaves, you leave with it. And you don't land. You cannot land here in Liverpool. You're, you're, you're under arrest on the boat. And my friend that I talked into going with me said, do you realize 
we're going to spend the rest of our lives now on this boat, just traveling around the world. It's horrible. And I said, don't worry about it. I got you into this. I'll get you out. So I escaped from the boat, which was really simple. I put on a disguise. I didn't need to. I had this coat and all this black stuff on my face. I had a beard and... All I had to do was walk off the boat and follow some other merchant marine that just, you know, guys that just walked through a gate, got right. drunk, and came back on the boat to sleep it off. And I went to downtown Liverpool, well, center city. Yeah. It was the only thing preparation we had were some pounds sterling. And there was a bus that said Central City. And I, I held out my hand and I said, tell me how much and when to get off. And the guy told me when. And when I stepped off the bus, uh, there was a record store. Right. And I walked in, and the Beatles had just released a Rubber Soul album. Yeah. Huh. And I bought it on the Polydor record. Oh. Drive My Car is the Drive first. Drive My Car. That's the first one on that, right. the English version. I'm listening in the booth, and I'm going crazy. And when I walked out, there was a, uh, across the street from the, there was a, a, a newspaper office the Liverpool Echo, the biggest newspaper in Liverpool. Anyway, I went in and I told, uh, I told this receptionist that I was being held captive on a ship. By pirates. Yeah, and she looked at me and I realized, well, you know, I'm here. And then I had to say, I escaped. And I'm an American musician. Anyway, I told her the story. It was all true. And she said, wait here, I'll get an editor. Needless to say, he liked it. And drove me back to the boat. He said, if I see you go back on that ship, I'll have um, every newspaper in, in the north of England and, and the Mirror, probably, in London, will cover this story. Okay, so I'm on the front pages with my friend. And we made a lot of press being these young musicians who were banned and were finally released because of the press, the, the pressure that the public was putting on immigration. They let us go, and we got caught gigging, and we were deported in chains. By the way, <laughs> they they arrested us, and and we were in chains and deported, put in steerage on a ship out of Southampton. But it, you well, know, you were on in the paper. We were in the paper, infamous, and and I was sending press releases uh, home, and you know we were the guys in Liverpool. I didn't say we were deported. And when I got back, like, I got gigs with, like, first I got a gig with the Angels, my boyfriend's back. Then I got a gig with Chuck Berry, and I toured with Chuck as a bass player. And it was like, I was getting good gigs because I was the Liverpool guy. Well, I, cool. I don't know if a gig with Chuck Berry was that <laughs> no, good. No, no, yeah. it was school. Oh, it was okay. Yeah. You didn't right. get paid. That's oh, all. right, exactly. You don't get paid. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then, you know, lots of other bands and record deals and so on. But anyway... When I got into the studio and I'm in this room editing and passing them down to another room where they're do where John is. I haven't seen him, I know he's down somewhere else. And he's in another another room. studio. Yeah. They're doing overdubs and they're cutting vocals and adding stuff and um and he comes into this room where I'm editing, probably just to get away from Phil. Spectre, who was a madman, <laughs> and um, and he said, "Is it okay?" I had to stop myself from peeing in my pants, because there he was, John Lennon, standing in the doorway, and I said to him, "But come in, I'm the guy editing your stuff that you guys are working on." Oh, it's good. yeah, it's very good, and he sat down on the other side of the console and put his feet up on the glass, so all I could see was his two sneakers and cigarette smoke. And after a few minutes, I said to him, I've, I've been to Liverpool. And his head popped up, and he said, where are you from? I said, no, I'm born and raised in New York. And he said, well, why would you go to Liverpool? It's dirty, and everybody there wants to come here. And I said, well, I, I wanted to make it, so I wanted to swim in the Mersey, you know. And, right. and so he said, well, how did that work out? And I said to him, well, good and bad. Bad, I got deported. But good, uh, I made a lot of noise before I was. And he said to me, were you one of the two Yanks that was in all the papers? 
And I said, yeah. He said, really? It's amazing. I can't believe it. I'm meeting you. And he got like, he got like, he got all like excited about the fact that he was meeting this guy that they all laughed about. You know, they were laughing about. And also he said, now we released an album that week. Uh-huh. And should have been us on the front page of every newspaper. And you were on the front page. You know, how did that happen? And I told him. And he thought, this is great. What are you doing on this record? I said, editing. He goes, no, you're engineering. You're coming down to the main studio and you're working with us. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, if you, if you get the Imagine vinyl on the inside of the sleeve, there's a bunch of pictures of everyone involved in the record in there. So he took my picture with his Polaroid and it's in that circle. Wow. And then um, we became friends. He asked for my phone number. I mean, I used to ride, because I lived in the village, he lived in the village, we, I'd ride So how do you not and, freak out? Huh? How do you not I, freak out? Well, at first I freaked out, but then he was such a regular guy, it was like, I mean, he had a uh, uh, he had a way of putting you at ease, uh-huh. and he was interested in listening to you. Um, uh, he, he he was just you know there was something special about him. And Yoko thought that there was something, some numerology, some psychic thing that you know I was this guy that he you know had been to Liverpool and and that John had seen me years before and all this. And so I started making her records uh, produced by him. And, uh, and it just started a relationship that went on and on and on, and we, be- we were friends. Yeah. And, um, and then when he uh, wanted to come back after five years of absence, I was somebody he trusted. I mean, I never had an agenda with him. I remember when... Because he probably would have been able to sniff that out right away, right? Yeah. Oh, if you had an agenda, forget it. I mean, you don't want to know what he called people who yeah. claimed to be his friends. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I was producing Alice Cooper. That was one of my first productions. What record? Muscle of Love. Okay. And he was heading out to California, his famous going out for a newspaper, and now right. they're coming back. And he said to me, oh, big producer, huh? And I said, yeah. He said, where are you producing it? I said, um, wherever they tell me. Mm-hmm. He said, no, 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 no. You're the producer. You tell them where. Why don't you do it in L.A.? I'll be in L.A. We can hang out. Uh, and that was uh, the original Hollywood vampires where I became the getaway driver uh-huh. for all this craziness that was going on. But it was fun. Yeah. It a little destructive, but it right, was, yeah. <laughs> it was fun, uh, but it was it was that a kind of relationship, and and you weren't there the night of the tampon. Yes, I, I was. Oh, you dri- were. Yeah, I was driving the okay car, uh, and for a good many years until after he passed, actually, I was always the sober guy. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> I was always the guy you could count on to be able to drive, to be able to run a studio. You know, to take care of the business that had to be done to make a record or to to write something or to I was the guy. So people like Aerosmith could get fucked up their you know out of their brains, but they knew that you know Jack would be handling the the business and it wouldn't get out of control. Right. But after John died, uh, I I went nuts. Yeah. It was it was it was hard because I think mostly the thing that bothered me was. Uh, because he told me he was going to Bermuda for a while and that we wouldn't be back in the studio to finish until after the first of the year. And so uh, I, I booked another, another gig. And he called me up and he said, no, I'm coming back. I, I, wanna, I, I can't stop. And we're going to do this thing uh, that's going to get Yoko really off the ground. It's called Walking on Thin Ice. You and I... We're going to figure out how to do this, uh, but you and I can play the instruments on it. Just the two of us in the room and Yoko, and we'll have some fun doing it. And we made a tape loop from from some stuff from the uh, sessions, from the Double Fantasy sessions. We made a loop, and then we played guitar and bass um, and percussion and various keyboard whatever we could put on the record 
we did, and it was just the two of it, and John playing a lead, and I'd be playing the whammy bar, and he's sitting next to me. And it was, so we were having a blast. And um, normally, like during Double Fantasy, I only lived two blocks from him on Central Park West, right. just down uh, up Central Park West a few blocks. So I would go home with him, get off at the Dakota, and then say goodnight and walk up. But since I had other gig now, I put I had the other gig start at nine at night and finish at three in the morning and then start with him. Like what I, was the other gig? It was a, a, a RCA. It was called uh, Karen and the Pins. It was new wave. Yeah. Okay. New wave. Yeah. And uh, and so uh, he would go home and I would go to the other session, and which was also at Record Plant in another room, and so. After he was shot, all I could imagine was that had I been in the car, oh, dude. Yeah. No. So you play this tape over and over and over again, because I saw a picture of him signing that album for that asshole. Yeah. That Bob Gruen had taken. Uh, uh, that that day, he was saying, "Look at all these albums. I'm signing albums out front." Yeah. Uh, so he was hanging around out front. I would have seen it. I would have tackled him. John would have, would have lived. The world would be different. And so, you know, I went crazy for a while, about eight years of craziness. And then I snapped out of it. Yeah. But yeah. it still haunts me. That's, Can't do that. Yeah. Can't do that. Well, you would tell me these stories about these Maraca uh Contest that you guys would have oh, was it the Shakers. I was just, yeah, I was just. He, he, uh, he, he claimed, and he was absolutely right. Of course, he was a genius in the studio as far as <laughs> doing things like. And I said to him, just to rile him up, I said, you know, I'll play percussion on this stuff. And of course, he said, no, no, he said, I'll, I'll play the percussion. I always play the percussion on it. You know, even more than Richard, I. I do it and I said no I'll do it and he said wait a minute uh, you know this is all with his Liverpool accent which I can't come close to doing but he said why don't we have a percussion contest and so as you do yeah yeah as so the next day we put up a track and we started doing various things and I'm a good percussionist we ended up, I had tambourines on my feet. I was hitting stuff with my elbow. We were both making idiots of ourselves. And he said to me, stop. He said, there's only one way to decide this contest, and we'll do it tomorrow so we can get to work. And I said, well, what is it? He goes, it's the one shake maraca. In other words, you take the maraca and you go, and you do it again, and you don't hear anything. When you're pulling it back, you don't hear, you don't hear, right. it just doesn't hit the other side. Doesn't hit the other side. So I brought a maraca home and I practiced fucking all, all night. It's so hard. All right. Next day, he comes in, he goes, you ready? Uh, yeah. I go out first to the microphone. No track now. Uh -huh. no, no way to hide. Bro. We got one more try. Go ahead. Try. Try. All right. All right. I give up. You let me see you do it. He goes out there. Uh, what the fuck? <laughs> How the fuck is he doing that? I said, okay, you win. You win. Jesus. All right, so now he had a little room off the side he would hang out in. Later, during the evening, I went in there. I found the maraca. And it had, looked like something around it, like a line, like it had been maybe glued back uh -huh. together. Just what the f So I took a screwdriver and I cracked it open. And the son of a bitch had sawed a maraca in half put foam rubber on one side and he did he did this to beat me yeah. 
He did that. So he was just a big liar. Yeah. And he was so competitive. Yeah. That, uh, you know, uh, I, th- I think I was telling you, I, you know, I'm really proud to say that I'm probably one of very few people, very few, who have actually worked with all four of them. Yeah. Starting with John, then when when we were when George had done uh, the Bangladesh concert, he finished the mix. It was all done, and you know, naively he thought we we'll use that mix for the for the movie, but no. So they called for the film mix, uh-huh. and he didn't have a film mix. He had a mix. But he didn't have sync on it. He didn't. There was nothing. It wasn't done to film. Right. So he had like a deadline of like 48 hours to turn this thing in, and it was all laid out, so it wasn't difficult. Everything was there, but it had to be mixed to to film it, and a mag made of it. Right. And so uh, John said to him, "You should work with this guy." And so we spent almost 40 straight hours with. With breaks in between, uh, he would he would uh, he would uh, uh, meditate about every six hours for mm-hmm. for about an hour. I would try that, but I ended up doing some coke uh-huh. after a while. Yeah. I couldn't keep away. <laughs> couldn't do it. Uh, and and we got this thing done. So I worked with George. I worked with John, and then uh, Richard, Sir Richard. Ringo, Ringo is a good friend of mine. We've become friends in California, and we were out to dinner one day, and I said to him, "Have you ever heard that tape of uh, um, of that John made where he says these songs are for Richard Starkey? These because the plan was at one time that Ringo was going to do a record, and John had organized." So far, Paul, he was waiting for George, for the Beatles to be the backup band for a Ringo album. Mm. Just a backup band, nothing else. Maybe singing a little, "Mm, or whatever, but they were going to be the backup band. And that was the plan. And John was writing songs that he thought Ringo could do. And Ringo had no idea that this even existed. And I had these cassettes because John was sending me cassette after cassette after cassette. All, almost all of it is you've probably heard some of it you've never heard and um, but these are the cassettes that they would take the vocal off for like free as a bird and the, like they that. were among them including now and then yeah uh, the, so anyway I, I made a DV a, a CD for, for Richard to to uh, listen to and he was touched he said he was crying when he heard John's voice yeah say to him this is for Richard this is definitely for Richard Starkey this one's for Ringo saying this and and uh, and I said to him there's one song on there um, Richard called uh, Grow Old With Me and I'll do it for free with you and I'll do all the string arrangements and so he said let me call you back on that because he went back and he listened to it a few times. And he called me up a few hours later and he said, let's do it. And he put together uh, the band to do it. And he got uh, Joe Walsh, who was his brother-in-law, on guitar. He played drums. And Paul came in and played bass and sang backup vocals. So then I had Paul and and Ringo. So I had the four of them and it was... uh, it's a nice notch on the belt. It's nice, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy to me that you I wear you, suspenders. Man. Yeah. You made that you made that trip to Liverpool because I think I heard stories about Rick Nielsen and Tom Peterson doing the same thing. Yeah. Right? So that was just the thing that everybody Everybody wanted to do that because everything that was worth anything at that time was coming from the north of England. It just was because what had happened here there was great rock and roll in the fifties into into 60 and then suddenly there was Fabian and yeah. Frankie Avalon and this manufactured garbage that was made to, to be in beach movies uh, uh-huh. you know as a backing 
and and Fats Domino and Chuck and you know all these great people were not getting played anymore. Little Richard and Pat Boone was singing Little Richard right, songs. Right. It was like, come on. And then uh, all of a sudden, the light turned on again, and it, it came from the north of England. And that's, you know, we heard it as our own music coming back to us yeah. with a, a very nice twist. But we wanted to know how they were getting that twist because we just couldn't get it. We had to go there right. to get it. How, how did you get hooked up with Cheap Trick? I mean, how did... Uh, I, they were... Well, I knew, you know, I knew who they were. They had, I had demos from them, but I wasn't so paying much attention. So they sent you demos, or I mean, they came around. They were circulated. Uh huh. Um, but I wasn't making a move on it, and I had an in-law in Waukesha, Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. Isn't he it? had the worst taste in music ever. He worked for Miller. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> and he just, I mean. When he'd say, let's go hear a band, it was just like, oh, please. But anyway, he goes, let's go to Sunset Bowl. There's a great band playing. Cheap Trick. I said, yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah. You know? And we went to see them. They played in the lounge at the Sunset Bowl. And they started playing. And they did an act. It was not just playing. It was like a carnival. Uh-huh. You know, Rick Nielsen laid on the floor and they did a they did Rick will te- test your can, can test your weight uh. any woman but they had to sit on his face <laughs> and he would guess their weight it's a good and, gag yeah I mean it was it, he doesn't do that anymore does he no <laughs> <laughs> they stop yeah and you know, and it was I mean the whole show was great and the music was fantastic and I went up and introduced myself after they knew who I was because they, they knew Aerosmith. And, um, and I said, I, I definitely want to get you guys a deal. And I called up uh, my friend at Epic Records and I said, if you don't sign this band, in two weeks time, I'll give you two weeks, I'll, t- I'll bring them to RCA. Uh-huh. And they signed they them. They did it. Epic signed them. So you make that first record, because I think they told me that they had all the, the hits that are on those other records. We had recorded. recorded. You did recorded record. 30. But they're not on the record. No, we recorded 30 tracks. Now, we planned on having a very long relationship. Yeah. So we recorded 30 tracks. I love Go-Go Girls. Uh, uh, Surrender. Yeah. Uh, I Want You to Want. We recorded all those. You got Surrender, and you're just like, nah. No, no, I said next album, because... Okay. The, the the theme of the first album was political and and social and dark and yeah. very dark and I thought we're going to aim this for college uh-huh. that's where it's going it's not going to be accepted by anyone else there's songs about you know uh, daddy should have stayed in high yeah. school and a serial killer and 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 heroin and, <laughs> yeah, and right. you know but but that all makes sense on one record yeah. And then we'll move to the poppier stuff as we, as we go on. Well, the next album, I'm locked in a nut house with, with Aerosmith doing um, Draw the Line, Draw the Line, which went on forever. So I couldn't get to the second album. And I told uh, uh, the guy at Epic, who was head of A&R, by the way, Worman. Tom Worman, yeah. I said, look, Tom, I can't do it, but I'll executive produce it. And, um, and I'd like Rick Derringer to do the actual production with the band. And I'll mix it with Jameson. We'll mix the record. And he said, yeah, okay, Jack, I'll produce it. Yeah. And he produced it. And, and he softened the band up. He did those tracks again. And, you know, I always thought, I want you to want me as a hit. Well, it was after I mixed it from Budokan. Right, after you got a hold And it was the raw version that we wanted I mean, listen, he did a great job. It's, it, it, I, I know they have a problem with the way it sounds, but it's, it's, it it's cool. Yeah. It's great. The other songs are, are really good, but I Want You'd Want Me, I think, yeah. finally was what it was supposed to be when they did it live at Budokan, which, by the way, is not Budokan. Right. It's Osaka. Yeah. It's Osaka. Yeah. Because when we got the tapes, 
Budokan, we couldn't do anything with it. Was the te technically, it was terrible. We couldn't <coughs> fix it. But Budokan makes more sense than Osaka. You know, it has a ring, you know. Yeah. So, um, so we, we actually used Osaka and called it Budokan. Years later, Rick calls me up and says, we have the video. Uh -huh. I said, well, the video of what? He goes, Budokan. Just use the mix. And I said, Rick, the album is Osaka. <laughs> the video is Budokan. Right. So with some magic. Trickery. And the help of Pro Tools, we managed yeah. to make it work. Well, yeah. Okay, Aerosmith. So, I mean, you'd already worked with the New York Dolls. With, yeah. is, is that how the relationship with Aerosmith started? Or there was a bit of a thing um, between those guys, wasn't there? Yeah, there was. Joe Perry loved the New York Dolls. He did? I thought they hated them. No, Joe Perry loved the New okay. York He Johnny Thunders was his hero. Yep. Are we eating into India into your time? No? Okay. <laughs> he loved Johnny Thunders. He thought that... I mean, if you listen to, to Joe's songs... At the base of them, you can hear yep. what you know what inspired him. Uh, he's not; a, he was never inspired by English rock. Okay. He was inspired by the street. Right. That's that's him, raw, dangerous, and and that was Johnny. They didn't come any more dangerous than Johnny. So um, then they liked your work with the New York Dolls, and that's why they wanted to. Work yeah, with they you. they did. Well, I had Alice Cooper even before the, that. Yeah. So I had a, you know a semi name. They uh, went to Bob Ezrin, and Ezrin listened to them and said, J Jack Douglas is the guy for you. Yeah. And, and so uh, Lieber and Krebs, they managed the Dolls, so they already knew. I mean, that record, uh, the first Dolls record, Todd Rundgren was the producer. I was the engineer. Right. But Todd hated it. Yeah. He hated it. He was like, you know. Todd was like, everything Todd did, did was pristine and beautiful, and the harmonies were tight, and everything was great in its place. This was just the opposite. This was madness, chaos on the other side of the glass. But as I said to him when he said they're horrible, I said, yeah, but together they make a really cool noise. It's different. Yeah. It's, David Johansson would be in a booth singing the songs, to keep the band going and he was doing like personality crisis or trash or one of those uh -huh. classics yeah. and he, he came in Todd thought gosh fucking awful <laughs> he didn't know what to say to David but David walked in and he said to David this is going to sound great David when we add a bunch of harmonies to it right. and David looked at him and he said harmony are you accusing me of having melody <laughs> And I knew, oh, my God, this isn't going to... So Todd started not showing up. Right. He would call it in. How's it going? I can't make it. And we had to fend the label off Mercury Records. So they, they, we didn't want them to know that there was that the patients were in charge of the asylum right. at, at this point. But we got the record done, and Todd came in. We mixed it in a week. And, you know, it made some kind of history. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we mentioned that I've been working with Marty Scorsese on, on a number of projects. God damn. One of them, uh, and Ron Howard, I told Marty and Ron when I was in a room with him, you know, I got to tell you, it's tough working with you newcomers. <laughs> it's very hard. But they're great guys, and uh, I'd worked with Marty before on a blues thing we did for HBO. Well, he worked on Woodstock, too. Yeah, he did. Yeah. So um, we did this uh, personality crisis, One Night Only, which is on Showtime now. It's good, yeah. Yeah, it's quite good. And David Johansson, um, it's very good. If you get a chance to have, if you have Showtime, check it out. And I produced the music for it. And I'm working with Marty now on another project, but I'm... And, and it is yeah, what? Yeah, I can't. And yeah, it is, I can't. And it is. And it's Ron Howard and Marty again. Tell the... Uh, Young Frankenstein. Oh, everybody. Aerosmith story. So we're working on um, Toys in the Attic. And we had pretty much everything finished. Um, except this one track that was really had such a great groove. And we'd finished the whole track. 
but we couldn't figure out how to lay a melody line or anything into this what do you do with it what do you do with it so we used to have this thing where because Stephen would never have lyrics for songs he would have uh, syllables and he would just say stuff you know uh-huh. it would turn into it was a great way to work because certain sounds work great with a track right. and you make those sounds into words and then you, sometimes you wouldn't even do that yeah right and it would that would be the song but this one we couldn't come up with anything but what we would do normally when we we couldn't figure out what to do we were on 44th street between 8th and 9th avenue times square early 70s it was uh, it was beyond dangerous there were hookers and pimps and drug dealers and that and they were terrorizing the tourists any tourists that would come you know, west of Broadway was in trouble. But we were far west of Broadway. And so what we would do is we needed lyrics. We would just walk out onto 8th Avenue, walk up 8th Avenue, and just listen to the street. Yeah, You'd hear everything. I, and, you know, Lord of the Thighs was some pimp talking to his, you know, about his women. Right. I mean, we would just hear everything. And, and Stephen would write it down. I said, catch this, catch that. And we'd walk up to Broadway, then down Broadway, then down 42nd Street, and then back to the studio. And he, by then, he'd have ammunition. So now we've got this track we can't figure out anything to do. And so we said, let's go for the walk. Well, it's a Sunday afternoon. Nobody is on the street. We walk <laughs> up to 50th Street, nothing. Up to Broadway, nothing. Down to 42nd. Finally, I say, you know what? We're not getting anywhere here. Why don't we just go to a movie uh-huh. and forget about it for a while? It's the whole band's walking around. So Young Frankenstein, so I can, uh, you know, it's one of these theaters that, where they're showing things at uh, second run. Second run. Yeah. But we hadn't seen it, so we all buy tickets for $2 or whatever, and we go in and sit together and watch Young Frankenstein. And there's a scene where Marty Feldman answers the door and says, walk this way. <laughs> and it killed us. We are like, this is great. You know, I, we just loved it. We got back to the studio, put the track up, and I started walking around the control room like a punchback, trying to make a point to Stephen. And I'm going, walk this way. Walk this way. In time with the track, Stephen's looking at me, and he, he says, I'll be back in an hour. And he ran down to the stairwell where he liked to write with a cassette. And he came back with it. But we consider the first very rap songs. That's all because of Marty Feldman. <laughs> well, it's not Marty, but we never told him because he'd sue us. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, God bless him. So, yeah, uh, I mean, even back in the saddle, that track, and Stephen said, "What am I going to do with this?" And I said, "Look, we got to start. Let it be. We got to start this record with that track." And I want you to think, Gene Autry. What do you mean, Gene Autry? I'm back in the saddle right. again. I think, think that, think that, and and that's how we'll come back with this record. It's going to be the first thing you're back in the saddle. Right. And we said, "All right." Give me a few hours. Yeah. Pad, cassette, boom. Or Blazing Saddles. You could have gone to see Blazing Saddles. Yeah. And then he would definitely sue us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Get this now. Oh, yeah. Once, maybe, twice. No. Nah. Well, it's it's great to see you. Yeah. Uh, this has been a blast. And, and, you know, nice. Good luck with the label. <laughs> yeah. Jack Douglas. <laughs> <laughs>